Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode is supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. This time we hear about how our storyteller became a fighter pilot in the Air Force and some interesting things that happened to him while flying jet aircraft. I grew up summers on Martha's Vineyard Island off of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and that was during World War II. And the Navy trained Hellcat and torpedo bomber pilots at the primary airport on Martha's Vineyard Island. It was a commercial airport. The Navy took over part of it, and and they trained fighter pilots there. And I would ride my bicycle out to the airport. I lived in the summers in Oak Bluffs, and the ride out there was maybe five miles on my bicycle. And I'd sit off the end of the runway and watch the fighters go. And often, when they came back from some of the training missions, they'd fly over the house where I lived, over on the on the east side of the island, right off the beach. After watching those fighters for those years as a kid, I had finally made up my mind that I definitely wanted to learn how to fly. There was a small grass field that had crisscross runways about 2,000 feet long, and they flew Piper Cubs, J-3s, and J-4s off that airport and Cessna 120s. And so that's where I initially learned. When I was in high school, while I did that and then getting ready for college, I wanted to be able to do an ROTC education, except that the the school that I went to didn't have Air Force ROTC. They had Army. Not exactly what I wanted, but I did end up starting in the Army ROTC. But at uh, the end of my second year of college, on a lark, I went and took the Air Force pilot training exams, passed the exam. The Air Force was accepting two years of college at the time. The way the examination went, you had what was like an SAT exam, first of all, and then you had to take the physical, which was pretty demanding. And they also put you in a trainer, which was a simulator of sorts, to see how you'd fly that. They were pleased with what I had done, and they offered me an opportunity. I also did the same thing with the Navy, and they also said that they would accept me. Then I waited. About eight months later, I got the call. I said to myself, whoever calls first, that's where I'm going. The Air Force called first. So the Air Force accepted me. And with two years of college, uh, I couldn't have a commission yet, but I could go into the Air Force as a cadet. At that time, they had the aviation cadet program alive and well, and, and they were training pilots and navigators and bombardiers. The exams that I took qualified me for either pilot training or the navigator bombardier training. I was accepted to pilot training in May of 1956. After being accepted, our storyteller went off to the entry cadet program at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. Which basically takes a civilian, teaches them how to march, how to salute, how to, how to think military, how to speak military, how to look military. And uh, three months later, we went off to the primary training base, they trained in three different places, in three different levels. You start off as a basic cadet for three months of the speaking, walking, marching, etc. Then you go to primary training where they, at that time, 
They were flying T-34s and T-28s. The Air Force flew the T-28A. Navy flew a different version, but bigger, more powerful, three-bladed prop, etc. My primary training base was Bainbridge, Georgia, and I was there for, no, typically it was to be a uh, about a six-month program. It ended up being a little bit longer than that. It was about seven and a half months because they, when we got to the end and, and graduated from that part of it, my class ended up being a holdover class until the next base opened up, which is the jet base. From Bainbridge, Georgia, where I flew the T-34 and the T-28, I went on to Bryan Air Force Base. That program went on for about six months. It was all jet training. We did instrument training, formation training, and acrobatics and everything else that you could do in the T-33. When I graduated from that, I got both my wings and my gold bars at the same time. Got my commission. I was lucky enough to be selected for fighters. Strategic Air Command was taking most of the new pilots out of pilot training, and they were putting them in B-47s. The B-52 would come along shortly after that, and they wanted pilots for their mission, wanted them badly. Not very many of us got fighters. My class had, uh, we the top five guys in the class got interceptors, and the next 10, I think, got F-84s and F-86 tactical fighters. There was a difference I went to interceptors, F-86s, the F-86D. It had the bulbous nose, and it carried 48 rockets. The tactical fighter didn't have the big radar system. It had a small gun-firing radar system and guns in the nose. For those of you who listen to the logbook regularly, you'll remember that we featured a few stories about the tactical F-86 Sabre back in episode 12. The F-86D has a much larger nose above the intake to house the upgraded radar, but is basically the same plane everywhere else. The tactical version made its name in the Korean War, and the F-86Ds made their name in the Cold War. Two other classmates and I went to Perrin Air Force Base in Texas north of Dallas, up on Lake Texoma. We flew there for about six months, got about uh, 60 or so hours in the F-86, trained in high-level intercepts against targets like the B-36, which was a, a big, big, big bomber that SAC was flying. And we trained against other prop-driven four-engine bombers that the Air Force had here in the States that we could get intercept training against. From there, I, I, when I graduated, I went to McGuire Air Force Base. That was my first fighter assignment and covered basically the northeast coast with our F-86s. There were two F-86 squadrons there at McGuire at the time. Both flew the Ds and, and the Ls. They had converted to Ls by that time, which was a little bit longer wingtip, a slightly faster airplane, a little bit better fire control system. The early, early F-86s, Ds and Ls, had, a, had a, a problem with engines. Initially, I pulled alert in the F-86 there at McGuire, and the, that, that squadron was the second squadron in the Air Force that was selected for the F-102. So we converted there at home base at McGuire to the 102. So I, because I was one of the three new guys, I ended up pulling alert in the F-86 whilst the older guys converted to the 102. And then the, then the rest of us converted. And as we were 
doing our alert duty there, uh, we got the news that they were going to expand interceptor operations down along the Gulf Coast. And they picked our whole squadron up and moved us to England Air Force Base in Alexandria, Louisiana. That was an F-100 base at the time. They were flying F-100Cs and Ds. And we picked up the interceptor duty out of England Air Force Base to cover the Gulf Coast around New Orleans and all the way over to Mobile, Alabama. We were there for a little over a year, and the Air Force decided that they would move our squadron up to Greenland, Thule, Greenland, which is almost to the North Pole. They would not take the full squadron. They'd take uh, 12 airplanes, and they'd take 18 pilots. And uh, we'd sit alert up there for anything coming over the pole. Vladivostok wasn't very far away. They were also building the new ballistic missile early warning site in Greenland at that time. It was going to be the first. They called it BMUs, and it was going to be the first of its kind. One similar to it would eventually be built in Alaska, and another one would be built over in Europe. But that was the first. And because they were building that there, that got a lot of attention from over the pole, needless to say. So we were busy. That was a remote tour. Our squadron was there for a year. And it was 1960 when when we deployed up there in July. And in July of 1961, I came back. And my assignment when I came back was to go from a single-seat fighter, which is what I had flown up through this point in my career, was to go to Hamilton Air Force Base in California, just north of San Francisco, and fly the two-seat F-101 Voodoo. And that was another new experience for me. I would fly with a radar observer, a navigator radar observer in the back seat. So I, I was there in California for the next three, roughly three and a half years, almost four, uh, flying the, the 101. I was an interceptor pilot, an assistant flight commander. I was the life support officer, which meant all of the personal equipment got used. I had to have to do the training with the pilots. I was also a survival instructor and survival equipment training with the pilots every place that I went. When I left, I was at Hamilton. It was while I was there at Hamilton when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. When that happened, the Air Defense Command in NORAD, North American Air Defense, which also included Canadian, the Royal Canadian Air Force, our alert commitments were such that we obviously had to be able to survive whatever might happen if intercontinental ballistic missiles or long-range bombers came to the U.S. It was the master plan in a specific defense condition status would deploy us out of the target area. We were just north of San Francisco when we were at Hamilton, and all the bases around there were fairly close, and there was quite an assortment of interceptor fighters, F-106s, 101s, and we had to leave. When the President Kennedy came on television to announce to the country what had happened or what was happening, we were en route to our deployment base, away from the base. Our families had to stay behind in the target zone. We 
the the F one hundred one and the one hundred sixes at that time, and and some of the F one hundred twos had nuclear weapons that they carried, air to air nuclear weapons. We deployed with those weapons. That wasn't done ever before, and it was never done like that again afterwards. But we did deploy with them. We did it safely. The, the Air Defense Command was a was a good command. Had a lot of good people, good pilots. And when it was over and they allowed us to come back, we brought them all back. When we took off with them on board, they were live. When we brought them back, they weren't, for safety reasons. When I left Hamilton, I was selected to go to Tyndall Air Force Base to train interceptor pilots. I trained some ground school and taught in both the combat crew training school and the Interceptor Weapon School. The Interceptor Weapon School for the Air Force is a little bit like the Top Gun School that the Navy has. So I had that opportunity to teach in that school. From there, I left active duty, didn't take my uniform off, went to the state of Ohio as a full-time flying training instructor in a tactical fighter squadron at Mansfield, Ohio. They were flying F-84s. Air National Guard, and I was there full-time for the next 19 years. While I was in Ohio with the Air National Guard, uh, and we were still flying F-84s at the time, I happened to be the supervisor of flying when we had just sent some airplanes out to go to the gunnery range in uh, Indiana. And we always, whenever we prepared a flight of four to go, we always had at least one spare ready for them as well, so that if, if anything were to occur and, a, and there was a breakdown, one of the pilots could go to the spare airplane and still deploy uh, to go to the range or to go on a refueling mission. So we had a what we called a hot bird sitting out on the ramp, and we got a call from the sheriff's department in town. And they wanted to know if we had an alert aircraft that could go fly or did we have anyone that was airborne in the pattern or close by. They had just had a bank robbery downtown, and uh, they would like to be able to see if they could track the getaway car. It sounded a little crazy to me, but remember, I had been an interceptor pilot and sat alert for long periods of time, and I was sort of accustomed to being scrambled to go find something. And I said, well, I can get an airplane airborne in probably six minutes, which they jumped on. They said, great, do that. Now, there was going to be an issue with the communication, since the frequencies that the police and the Air Force transmitted on weren't compatible. Nonetheless, grabbed my chute, raced out, jumped in the airplane, got sent off. And after I got airborne, the tower there at Mansfield had the sheriff's office on the line. And they relayed information to me on where the bank robbery had taken place, a description of the getaway car, the direction and routing that they assumed that that getaway car went, which happened to be sort of east-northeast uh, out of the Mansfield area, out among the hills and, and lakes. So that's where I went. And I circled around out there, and I with the, with the description of the vehicle, I got down low enough that I could be able to identify a car based on the description that I was given. And I decided that I needed to probably look in remote places. Made sense to me. Sure enough, After probably 20 or so minutes of looking, I spotted what looked like the description that I was given. 
re- that was relayed to me. I let the tower know that where I was looking and where they should send a squad car or two. And what I had found was the description of the vehicle at the end of what looked like a, a paved road that went to dirt and ended up at a at a house sort of in the woods in a remote area, not far from one of the big lakes. And uh, I circled there three or four times. And interestingly enough, one of someone came out of the house looking up at me to see what in the world was going on and ducked back in and didn't come out again. And then I saw the vehicles that the department had vectored out there. And when they turned the corner to come into that dead-end road, I came back around down low enough that they could see me and went to where the structure was and circled there a couple of times. And sure enough, they pulled up, surrounded the house, got the people out of the house, and it sure looked to me like they were arresting them. And that is what they did, and it was the guys that had robbed the bank. So it was, you know, it's a fun story. It did happen. There's a photo of me telling another pilot about it. I'm we're in the cockpit of the fighter. He's standing on the ladder beside it. They, the sheriff's office has presented me with a with a badge. So the star is on my f- flight jacket. Yet they told me I was unofficially a sheriff's deputy, and we're looking at a map for me to show the other pilot where the house was and where we found them. And Later on, the unit got a nice letter from the sheriff's department thanking us for what we did. And of course, there was there were newspaper articles about it. It's it's kind of an anecdote to an interesting career. The state of Ohio decided they they at that time had five fighter squadrons, and one in Toledo, one in Springfield, Ohio, uh, one in Mansfield, and two at uh, Rickenbacker Air Force Base. So we changed to, to C-130s. Those of us that were full-time went to Little Rock, Arkansas to, to, to get our initial training in the 130 and instructor upgrade training. And from that point on, for the next 10 years, I flew C-130s and that unit had responsibilities in Europe and also in South and Central America. And uh, we would rotate back and forth. When we got the C-130s, um, I was the first 130 squadron commander there. And I held that responsibility both uh, as a, the, the commander of the the 164th Tactical Airlift Squadron. And then uh, for a period of time, uh, around 1982 and three, I was the deputy commander, deputy group commander. And then I retired in 1984. After retiring from the Air Force, our storyteller started working for United Airlines. And interestingly enough, I, they didn't hire me to go and fly airplanes. They hired me to go and manage pilots that flew airplanes. My first assignment with them was um, in the New York domicile. I was the flight operations manager in New York, primary office at Kennedy, an office at LaGuardia, and one over at Newark. And we had pilots that were flying 727s, 737s, DC-10s, and I had about five guys that, that flew 747s. I was there for a year, and, the, and they asked me to go to corporate headquarters outside of Chicago and be the manager of air safety for United. I was in that job for about uh, 
two and a half, almost three years, and uh, had the opportunity then to go to the Airline Pilots Association, which was headquartered in Herndon, Virginia, right outside of D.C., right ne almost next to the Dulles Airport, and work in their flight safety department. And I ended up being with the Airline Pilots Association for the next 25 years. And from there, I retired and came here. You know, when I put on my hat the first time with a name tag or anything like that, it said I could fly. I never stopped. Bill Faneff flew for over 10,000 hours while in the Air Force and piloted many of the interceptor jets that are most recognizable from that time. Today, Bill has a home in Love's Landing where he keeps his personal fighter jet, an RV-12. It's not really a jet, but he says it flies like one. You can check out pictures of Bill along with all the airplanes that he flew during his time in the Air Force, as well as more information about these stories by going to the article at thelogbookpodcast.com. This episode was supported directly by your donations. If you enjoy the show, you can support its production by becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you set a donation level that is given every time a new episode is released, and you can always set a monthly limit so you don't go over your budget. Depending on the amount donated, you are granted access to different rewards that are as simple as hearing a sneak preview to the next episode, all the way up to exclusive content that didn't make it into the show. Any amount is helpful, and the more that's donated, the more the show can improve. Head over to our website, thelogbookpodcast.com, and click on the Patreon banner at the side of the page to start supporting. Also, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps bring awareness to the logbook. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of the logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in the logbook.